I want to make one thing perfectly clear. This show is not about lumberjacks. My name is Christopher Grunland, and every month I share a story. Sometimes the stories contain truths, but most of the time they're made up. Sometimes the stories are funny, other times they're serious. But you have my word about one thing. I will never, ever share a story about lumberjacks. This time, it's the first serious-ish story I ever wrote. A tale about an after-school fight. All right, let's get to work. Memorial Park. Peter West once told me he wasn't superstitious, but that Friday the 13th when Joey Schmidt shouted at him on the bus for all to hear, After school! Memorial Park! Be there! I imagine he wished he'd followed that fear and stayed home. Schmitz may not have been the strongest kid at Walt Whitman Junior High School, but he was by far the meanest. At 13, he was already the leader of a small gang and making a decent living selling bags of reefer. When he was finished with a fight, his victims usually resembled a quivering mass of roadkill in the throes of death, if they were lucky. Even high schoolers feared Schmitz, and on that day the October winds turned frigid, Peter West would be added to the list, all for being overheard saying to a friend, I like Devo better than Van Halen. No one ever said 8th grade made any sense. I watched West tremble as we filed off the bus and into the gloomy autumn air. Other kids raced past him while shouting, You're gonna die, West! And, Schmitz is gonna kick your ass all over the place! I'll be the first to admit they weren't very original in their proddings, but they did have a point. West may have been a big guy, but he wasn't known for his fighting prowess. There was this time when we were in second grade, in Cub Scouts, when our den went into the city to see a live taping of Bozo's Circus. West was picked to play a game, Steal the Bacon, that game where two teams are divided, told to form a circle, and each member is given a number. Someone on the opposite team had your number, and when the numbers called out, you raced into the center of the circle to fight over the bacon, which, on this occasion, was a hand towel rolled up and wrapped in layers of masking tape. West was opposite a girl. And when their number was called, they raced into the circle, locked in mortal combat for all to see. It looked like a tug-of-war match as they wrestled each other for a board game Bozo the Clown would personally award the winning team. They were the last two. The score was tied. Whomever won would be their team's hero. Losing it all would not be good. Just as our representative from den number five looked like he was going to win, the girl stuck out her leg, tripping West and sending him crashing to the ground for all to see and laugh at. Even Bozo laughed at the pitiful sight on the ground, holding his elbow and crying on live television. It didn't take West long to acquire a deep hatred for clowns and tall women. If a girl could make him look that bad just by tossing him to the ground, how bad would he look after being beaten by Joey Schmitz? 
The poor guy would have to suffer all day long knowing that he had to fight Joey after school. It looked like not even a miracle from God himself could save him. When we entered the school to embark on yet another fun-filled day of lessons and socializing, I noticed West breaking off from the rest of the group filtering in through the double doors. He made a beeline for the office. It'll never work, I thought. Nurse Holland won't let you go home unless you're running a fever or throwing up. West must have known this, though. I saw him in the corner of the office, fingers pressed deep in his throat. Midway through history class, West wandered in. I guess Nurse Holland didn't fall for his trick, or West couldn't trigger his gag reflexes into releasing his Wheaties. Our teacher, Mr. Mitchell, signed West's tardy slip and pointed to his desk. He sat down, and with the exception of a few spitballs fired his way by everybody's favorite classroom weapon, the Scripto Cannon, class passed by uneventfully. The Scripto Cannon, for those of you wondering, is made from an old Scripto erasable pen. Pop off the eraser and remove the metal ink rod with your teeth. Jam a spitball into the pen's body with the rod, and then push another in behind the first. Brace the rod against a book when pressure is built up inside, and then slam the whole mechanism toward your body, and bingo! Instant pain. Getting caught with the Scripto Cannon was grounds for a week-long detention due to the incredible velocity with which they fired spitballs. Second period brought P.E. and embarrassment for those who couldn't run fast, lift heavy weights, or throw things great distances. Peter West was always embarrassed during second period. That particular week in P.E. we were wrestling. Everybody wanted to see a matchup between West and Schmitz, and cheers went up as Coach Millsap paired the two off. In front of us all, they wrestled. Or, I should say, Schmitz wrestled. I'm not sure what West was trying to do, but if it was any indication of what would happen later that day, he was truly doomed. Oh, no way, dude. Mine's bigger. Look. Ah, shower time. That time when we all stood before each other with nothing to hide, proud of our accomplishments in the gym. We talked about things that really mattered, budding breasts, pubescent fantasies, and, as Ronnie Chult and Brian Desserin were discussing, penises. That may be, but yours looks like a fucking sock, Desserin shouted at the uncircumcised Chult. Yeah, well, at least I'm not a squeeb, Chult said. Squeeb, for those of you unfamiliar with the 13-year-old vocabulary of the mid-80s, was the word for someone who sucked farts out of people's butts. Yes, it's a vile thought, but back then it was the pinnacle of all cutdowns. Christopher Grunlin and Tony Tilmani had covered the floor in shampoo and were sliding around on their impromptu Johnson & Johnson slip and slide. Moments later, Coach Millsap burst into the locker room screaming, Grunland! Tomani, if you two dagos don't stop that shit, I'm going to put my 12 and a half inches straight up your asses. Millsap meant his shoe, but it's not too hard to figure out what his 12 and a half incher was in our minds. Millsap then reminded us about how this sort of tomfoolery led to the mangling of Chris Lavescu's scrotum on a soap dispenser. 
We all crossed our legs in tribute to Lavescu's mishap, sharing in his pain. When showers were over, towel warfare began. One certainly felt manly running around naked while snapping his peers in their asses with wet towels. It was all so much fun, unless you were fat, known to your class forevermore as sock dick, or if you happened to be a geek. Peter West was a geek, and that day he would suffer a little more than usual. West was in the middle of dressing himself in the back of the locker room when Schmitz and the wedgie patrol surrounded him. West's back was turned to the group, so he had no chance to react as Joey Schmitz grabbed his underwear and pulled, giving him the biggest wedgie in history. I'll confess that I enjoyed a good wedgie as much as anyone, but when one is hung from his locker door by his underwear and snapped repeatedly with wet towels, the humor of it all tends to disappear. West looked even more pitiful than on that grim day on Bozo's Circus as he hung on his locker crying, blood running down his legs. Coach Millsap burst into the locker room and yelled at Schmitz in his entourage and then at West for being such a wimp. It took a body as big and soft as Millsap's to hold in that much machismo. He pulled West down from his locker, wrapped him in a towel, and then yelled at him the whole way to the nurse's office. After P.E., it was off to the astounding world of science, as taught to us by Mr. Hunter, known to the class as Blitzkrieg. Blitzkrieg looked like a buzzard. His Adam's apple stuck out from his long, pencil-thin neck, and what little hair the man had, we speculated wasn't actually hair, but a mold experiment gone awry, causing him to look like he was stricken with mange. In a past life, he must have been a mad scientist who never got over a boyhood fascination with torturing frogs. He regaled us with the mysteries of science, and even those who ditched school on a regular basis came to his class because we all knew that one day he'd blow himself up right before our very eyes. Wes came back from the nurse's office for the second time of the day, just as Blitzkrieg was electrocuting Daryl Hines with an old telephone crank. The fact he did this backed up our theories about his cruelty. He knew damn well that Heinz was epileptic, but that didn't stop the blitz. As Heinz kept jolting, even after his electrocution was complete, West sat down. As soon as he took his seat, one of Schmitz's cronies handed a letter to him. It simply said, Screw the park after school. I'm taking you at lunch. West looked ill. He had ten minutes to prepare and let his mind run wild before lunch. The poor guy probably saw visions of Schmitz forcing him to eat garbage and slicing him with plastic serrated knives. At the front of the class, Heinz finally stopped twitching and sat down. Blitzkrieg now held something resembling a small cattle prod. He tossed it from hand to hand as he invited the next student to step forward to take part in another display of the wondrous powers of electricity. Blitzkrieg's class was favored by all. Lunch at Walt Whitman Junior High was a sight to behold. 
food flying through the air, seeming to defy all laws of gravity. Steve Saunders playing Led Zeppelin's Fool in the Rain on the jukebox. Not because he liked the song, but because the record stuck and played the first few bars over and over, driving even the biggest Led Zeppelin fan insane. And then, of course, the meal itself. Lunch that day was served over two pieces of bread. Several scoops of something orange that was supposed to be pimento cheese but wasn't rose up from the bread like cysts, waiting to burst open and release red pebbles of an apparent vegetable matter. Placed next to the main course was the only identifiable part of the meal, peaches. Peach juice spilled over from that section of the lunch tray and ran into the main glob, making lunch even more unbearable to look at. For some weird reason, the person coming up with the menu thought corn was the best way to round out everything. I sat beside West and said, how's it going? He ignored me and looked at Schmitz. Maybe that wasn't a good question. A dumb question. How do you think I'm doing? Sorry, man. Are you really going to fight him? Do I have a choice? No, I guess not. When Schmitz finished his lunch, the only person in the cafeteria to do so, he pointed at Peter West and grinned. He then stood up and slowly walked our way. Kevin Burns handed Joey Schmitz a fork and said, Get him, Joe! Schmitz slapped the fork from Burns's hand and grabbed him by the throat. I don't need that. And if you ever call me Joe again, I'll break every fucking bone in your chunky little body. Understand? Burns nodded. Schmitz continued his advance. West waited for his end. Joey Schmitz, come to the office. Joey Schmitz, come to the office. West was saved momentarily by the intercom. Schmitz passed by our table, and before he left the cafeteria, he turned on one heel, blew a kiss West's way, and said, You ain't in the clear yet, dead boy. Shortly after Schmitz disappeared up the stairs, the bell rang, and it was off to math. Mrs. Carter, our teacher, had to be the inspiration for Jabba the Hutt. She was so large that we called her Planet Carter and we joked about her having her own field of gravity. When she walked up and down the rows in the classroom to make sure no one was cheating, we would whisper to one another, The Death Star is in firing range, Captain. The Death Star is in firing range. She wore hearing aids that looked like some sort of alien growth, flesh-colored things meant to look inconspicuous, but all they did was made her ears look like they were melting. If you asked her a legitimate question, her hearing aids never picked you up, but if you dared whisper an answer on a test to a classmate, you could be sure she'd hear it all the way across the room. We never accomplished much in her class, but West loved it because, for one period each day, Joey Schmitz was down the hallway in remedial math classes with the learning disability kids. The last class of the day was English. It was also the last chance for a miracle to come West's way. Schultz rocked back and forth in his desk while the Griffin brothers flipped boogers on Amy Orville and Debbie Massey. 
West looked like he was praying, maybe hoping he'd be called to the office for some reason, or that something would take the attention off the fight, like the time Mrs. Anderson had a stroke in front of the entire class while sharpening her pencil. If West was praying, his prayers weren't answered. I think he denounced Catholicism that afternoon when the bell finally rang. It only lasted a few seconds, but it signaled the beginning of West's end. Schmitz bolted up from his desk before the bell was even done sounding. As he passed Peter West's desk, he said, Time to die! And then he disappeared into the hallway where he was greeted by excited fans. The classroom emptied with Friday anxieties until only West and I were left in the room. You really going to go through with this, I said? He gave me the same look he gave me in the cafeteria. Do it for the geeks! Again, he gave me the look. Come on, I said. I'll walk with you. West paused. I wet myself. Oh, shit. Um, if we swing by the gym, I'll give you a pair of sweats I have in my locker. They're clean, at least. After a quick stop, we were off to Memorial Park. In the locker room, I suggested West just run home and skip the park, but he was right when he said, that would only make it worse. I just need to hope for the best and get it over with. The entire school had turned out for the fight, and even some high schoolers from Emerson High showed up for the spectacle. People pointed at us as we rounded the corner and came down Hammond Street. West and I walked in silence, but it was broken by a cry. You kids better stop that or I'll call the police! The woman who lived on the corner of Hammond and Pershing did her best to threaten the large group assembled in the park, but she was ignored. That's when Wes spoke up. Shut the fuck up, you baboon-faced old hag! It was clear to me, at least, that he hoped to anger enough to follow through on her plan, but he wanted to be sure. I fucking dare you, you old bat! I bet you pee dust. She ran into her house, and West walked straight up to Joey Schmitz and said, Let's do this. Joey flicked his cigarette at West, causing him to flinch. It bounced off his chest and fell to the ground. West crushed it under the bottom of his shoe, and then the two entered the pit, a sandbox with a large fiberglass turtle in the middle where after-school fights took place. Years of play and fights had trampled down the sand, creating a deep bowl. Once you entered, there was no turning back because it was flanked on three sides by onlookers, and a chain-link fence blocked the fourth side. Come on, you pussy, Schmidt said to West as he circled and sized him up. West towered over Schmitz, and with a little confidence in training, he might have been able to take almost anyone in our school, but he spent all his time reading and playing Dungeons and Dragons instead of being outside where fights occurred. Still, he made the first move, rushing in and grabbing a handful of Joey Schmitz's hair. A few quick punches from Joey to West's midsection pushed him back. West swung with all his might, but Schmitz ducked the haymaker and came back with a right that resulted in a loud smack against West's face. Schmitz landed another on the other side for good measure, and I think I speak for everyone present when we thought that was it. But West stayed on his feet. His nose and lip bloodied, he brought his arms up like he had been leading us on the whole time, but it was like that old video game Punch-Out with West assuming the role of Joe Glass. 
Each time Wes tried throwing a punch, it was countered by Schmitz. And when he tried wrapping up his smaller opponent, he was too slow. There was no possible way West was going to win the fight, and Schmitz was riled up enough that it was clear to all that he was ready to finally do some serious damage. So when Joey Schmitz threw his next punch, West turned, took it to the center of his back, and screamed, My scoliosis! A week earlier, we were all screened for scoliosis, and West was diagnosed as having a case of it. A very slight case, but enough to become an even bigger target of adolescent ridicule. As West slumped to the ground, arching his back and writhing in fake pain, I saw his plan. He had secretly palmed a handful of sand and eagerly awaited Schmitz's advance. Schmitz read through the strategy, though, and when he advanced, the millions of gleaming grains of sand West cast his way were deflected by Schmitz's jean jacket. Schmitz looked crazed as he peered over the edge of the jacket. He laughed like a madman. He passed through a shaft of light between broken clouds, his teeth shining a dirty yellow. Teeth, I shouted, but West was already a move ahead of me, charging Schmitz on all fours, mouth wide open and ready to bite. Yeah, get him, Peter! Bite the fucker's leg off! I shouted too soon. West's skull emitted a hollow sound like a dropped pumpkin. A spray of blood filled the air as Schmitz's hiking boot squarely connected with West's nose. I thought I saw cartilage right before Peter West slumped face down in the sand and didn't move. God damn, Schmitz, you fucking killed him, shouted Danny Cassiopo. First you punched him into scoliosis and now you drove his nose into his brain and you fucking killed him. Even the most bloodthirsty of gathered spectators seemed terrified. Maybe Cassiopo was right. But Joey Schmitz wasn't frightened. In fact, he seemed bolstered by the damage he'd just done. He turned to me and said, Did you call me a fucker? I understood why West wet himself in English class when Schmitz pointed at me and said, You're gonna wish you were him when I get through with you. And then suddenly it happened. West bolted upright at Schmitz and slammed him against the same fence that bought Richard Park nine stitches the week before when Gabriel Viviano raked his forehead across the jagged fence top. Now against the same fence, the two struggled. That's when West saw them. They were hanging out of Joey Schmitz's pants. West grabbed the back of Schmitz's fruit of the looms and looked like he'd never let go. West finally used his size to his advantage and yanked Schmitz's underwear all the way up to his shoulder blades. It was at that point in my life that I realized sometimes there is justice in the world because Peter West hung Joey Schmitz on the fence by his underwear for all to see and mock. The crucifixion of Joey Schmitz. West really did it. As the crowd ran up to greet their new hero, West flashed a thumbs up my way and said, For the geeks. And then he walked away. He didn't acknowledge his new fans. He didn't turn around and watch Schmitz struggling on the fence. He didn't do anything one would expect after such a stunning victory. He just walked away as onlookers scattered at the sound of police sirens heard in the distance. I would give anything to go back in time to watch the cops pull Joey Schmitz off that damn fence.
Wes did a good job disappearing from the crowd, but I saw him on my way home. He was on the old lady's doorstep with his shirt in his right hand, pressed against his ruined nose. It took balls to fight Schmitz, but it took even bigger balls to go up to a stranger's door and apologize for something horrible you said not ten minutes earlier. I smiled and walked on, but not before I caught a glimpse of what West held in his left hand. It was the waistband from Joey Schmitz's underwear, a medal he earned commemorating his victory on a battlefield called Memorial Park. big thank you for listening to Not About Lumberjacks. All music by Ergo Fizmiz and Chad Crouch, also known as Poddington Bear. Visit nolumberjacks.com for information about the show, the voice talent, and the music. If you love the show, you can help out by sharing it with others and leaving a review or a rating on iTunes. Next month, in honor of year two of Not About Lumberjacks, I swear that it's a story not about lumberjacks. Until next time, be mighty and keep your axes sharp. <laughs>